0: Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni. Thanks for joining us. Now, if this is your first time listening to the show, welcome. On Pixel Sift, we speak to the creative minds in video games and interactive media to find out their stories. What does it actually take to make those experiences that you love? Now, one of the biggest names in game development is the legendary John Romero. Chances are, if you've played a video game, you'll know... Uh, or, or have experienced one that John has worked on. Titles such as Doom, Wolfenstein, Commander Keen, Red Faction, the infamous Die Katana, and much, much more, John had a hand in making. Now, I had the opportunity to speak to John Romero as part of the XRWA Festival late last year, and he jumped at the opportunity to answer my questions about what games were like to make back in the 80s and 90s, what he thinks about Microsoft buying up Bethesda, or which its Software... A company that he co founded is now a part, and what it feels like to influence so many other game developers. We speak a little bit about his new game. Uh, it's called Empire of Sin that he co created with his wife, Brenda Romero, a legendary game developer in her own right. Let's jump into that conversation now. Uh, John, I just wanted to ask you've just released the brand new game Empire of Sin. It came out this week. Um, it's a strategy game for people who haven't come across it set in sort of Prohibition era uh, US. You control a mob boss. And can you tell me a little bit about how some of those lessons uh, and those core principles you've talked about uh, applied to the development of this uh, new game that's just come out?
1: Um, Yeah, well, coding transparently really is important. So when we were making the game, um, we made sure that our um, engineers had a lot of communication with each other. So they would do... um, code planning together. They would sit next to each other and kind of plan the, the, the way the next feature was going to work. They would talk over the way the, the game used memory, um, if it was fast enough. You know, speed is always a concern. Um, and we have code reviews every time we check in code. So we make sure that before anyone checks code into the, uh, the Perforce repo, that there's a review by another programmer of the code line by line uh to ensure that there aren't any, you know, mistakes and, you know, some obvious mistakes in what's been typed um or any, you know, interactions with other parts of the game that 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 person may know about. So it just helps the um it just helps the it helps the game check in with better uh you know, better results on uh on just people seeing problems.
2: One of the things I really noticed, as you mentioned, there twenty eight games, five and a half years. It sounds like there would have been a lot of really long hours uh, in order to make those games uh, built by people who really, really loved it. Does that still apply to the way that you make games? Do you think that's the way that games should be made these days?
1: Um, we yeah we don't we don't do that anymore. That was back then. <laughs> um, no, nowadays you know it's basically you know, if possible, nine to five. And, uh, you know, people have lots of time off, you know, people can't do good work if they're working too long and too late. So even when, if people, you know, people are self-driven to work later, we don't ever make people work late. And if they are working late, um, they know that if they get, if they start getting tired, they need to stop because they could actually hurt the code base uh, if they continue. So it's important to, you know, it's important for them to get their thing done but it's also more important not to actually uh ruin the time that you just spent the extra time that you spent by introducing bugs and stuff so um so yeah we we don't do that but back then that's what we did cuz that's the only thing that we that we wanted to do you know uh, most of the people it did had no families no girlfriends or anything like that so everybody was just you know working all the time, you know, was from 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. So, uh, and that was, you know, every day. I think sometimes we might have taken a day or two off on the weekends, but it depends on how close to the end of a game we were.
2: We still hear stories about some of these larger projects working to really punishing schedules uh, as they crunch towards the end of their development process. Is this something you think that is just a matter of time that the industry is slowly moving away from it, or or is that still the way that games are still being made in the whole?
1: Um, <clears throat> I don't see how it could change really. Um, some companies do that, you know, and and a lot of the reason is because there's a date that your game has been scheduled to be released, and there are a lot of engines running. Uh, sales engines marketing engines lots of third parties involved and changing that date is expensive and and sometimes it's it's bad especially when you're in the holiday season where everybody sells everything so um if you're if you're marketing driven you know if you're if you're uh part of a a whole ecosystem where that's really important to release in a quarter or during the holiday season or whatever, because a lot of companies that release a lot of games have lineups and they need to make sure they're consistent. Not everything is falling within a quarter. Um, So because of that, then they will start driving people to like getting stuff done, you know, get more stuff done and they can't really bring new people on at that stage because those new people wouldn't know anything and it would take away time from the people who do know everything. And that can't happen either. So the only thing that can happen is people, um, either working smarter or more time um, but that's not you know definitely not a good way of doing things
2: <laughs> is that a production um, challenge do you think is that something that could be solved with with better planning definitely yeah it
1: definitely is definitely it's a production challenge um, you know it's like if a producer usually it's it's just like cutting scope you know like you see that um, that you're trying to get x amount of stuff done for launch but it might be um a little too much stuff for the team to get done by that date so you might decide that you're going to push it off for a future update um but that's you know and sometimes those things are important to the base game to get people excited and you can't push them so there's a lot of evaluation that goes into deciding what's in and what's out for launch and if the in in the team is part of that you know, sometimes the team is part of that decision as well. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a lot of analysis and a lot of planning, um, and you can't ever predict that someone's family is going to get sick, and people can't be in in at work, and just things happen in life. You know, um, pandemic the pandemic affects things. Um, so uh, so yeah, there's just a lot of things that that companies are have to deal with when they're on a launch trajectory and sometimes you can't stop it. And so you just do the best you can. Um nowadays because the games are live, there's the opportunity to quickly update after launch. And some platforms tell you make you do that, like they make you patch it before you run it. So um and some some you know platforms will just auto patch. So that's great. You know, that's one of those things that kind of helps um Helps people not crunch so much if you know that you can put a a patch out later, you know, right after release.
2: I'm curious, you know, going through and looking at some of the process that you've done, you've got a career um, that lots of people have been following. They would have played a lot of the games you've done. How valuable is it for you to go back and look at the things that you've done previously uh, for the work that you're going to do today? Or is it just want to keep going?
1: It depends on, on, I guess, your memory. Uh, I have hyperthymesia, so I remember everything. Uh, I don't have to figure out, well, what was it like when I was making X game? I already know it's sitting there. <laughs> so that's really helpful. Um, and, uh, and failure is, is like one of the best teachers. So it's really important to, to pay attention to the things that, that went wrong. Um, things that went right are usually obvious. So uh, the things that go wrong are the things to just make sure you're not replicating. Um, so, you know, moving forward, when you, when you make stuff, you're always thinking about, uh, doing it better this time, doing something better on the next try. Um, and sometimes you, you know, sometimes you take whatever you learned and try to apply it to a completely different situation when you're doing new things. Uh, usually, you know, I'm always excited about making new things, doing new stuff and, uh, really other games and development um experience is the best guiding you know guiding light to trying to do things the right way to make sure that this new thing actually comes out right
0: you talk about kind of working on new projects and you can see the sort of development of of your career and the type of games you made but i mean last year you released sigil which was a, a megawatt uh you know that was very part of that history part of that uh, story that you had there why did you want to make uh, a sigil and sort of draw back on some of those earliest days of your game development
1: uh, well it was doom's 25th anniversary uh, in in uh, 2018 so on the doom's birthday I announced that I was making the sigil and that uh, that it was going to be released before too long and that we were going to take pre-orders for uh, two weeks for like boxed editions and when i was done with it then i would just upload sigil to the internet for free for people to to, to play and uh and so if people wanted the box set it was going to have some stuff that obviously you can't get by downloading <laughs> downloading off the internet like my head on a you know pewter statue You're not downloading that um so it was it was just a it was a fun project it was a way to celebrate doom's 25th anniversary and uh and so i made it I made a um, an episode that worked with the original Doom, not Doom Two, and that was uh, to to kind of show that you know you could still make entire episodes in the the, the limited palette of Doom One's design, um, and still do this, some new things. So I did some new stuff in there, which was important for me to try and do something new uh, with the original Doom that I hadn't done before, and that was basically making those shootable triggers when you're shooting at the Baphomet's eye. And then the shootable triggers would reveal the path forward or would reveal a secret. Uh, so whenever people saw those, they were always shooting at them because they, they learned in the almost a tutorial fashion at the beginning that that was important to do. So people were looking for those, the hint of the side of a Baphomet's eye somewhere was always important. Um, and it made it really fun to explore levels cause you're always looking for that stuff. Um, so yeah, it was, and I did a lot of really, um, interesting stuff with the deathmatch levels as well. So uh, yeah, so that's why I put it out. You know, there were a lot of fans out there. The nice thing was that I could put it out there for free. Um, I offer a download version that costs six euro, 66 cents. Um, that one includes a soundtrack by Buckethead, which is one of my favorite uh, musicians. And that plays through the levels while you're playing the game. If you decide to launch it with the the Buckethead wad file and uh and it sounds you know amazing when you're playing doom with non-midi music uh, it's pretty cool and the those ultimate. levels were made to those to those songs mm.
2: um the, the doom modding community is still really active um you know there's people all around the world um, are there any stories that you can share of people that you've spoken to who kind of you know had started their career or, or even just found an amazing pastime um just through modding or working on any of your games
1: geez a lot of people you know i get I, I when i go to conferences and speak a lot of people come up and tell me i get emails all the time telling me doom was the first game they played you know they now are doing stuff in either it or game programming or some something you know, I even speak at events that are not game related at all. They're developer events, you know, where people are programming PHP or you know, CSS slash HTML or or you know, MongoDB, all these backend services. And these people started because they played Doom. <laughs> so um, so that's also, you know, I can just talk at programming conferences or developer conferences. Um you know, as an example, um, Gearbox Software does Borderlands. Uh, Randy Pitchford started out as a Doom 2 mapper, and then he went to work at Apogee slash 3D Realms on Duke Nukem 3D, and then he started Gearbox. And he's been going strong for you know a long time, 20-plus years. Um, but there's a lot of people like that. Splash Damage, um, you name it, like any of the companies that worked on um, id stuff, Gray Matter. And machine games, you know, Saber. Uh, those people were all big fans of the franchises. And
2: um there's there's a lot of them.
1: <laughs> there's a lot of how, them. How does that feel so, uh,
2: such a impact on, I guess, so many careers and, and so many livelihoods?
1: Um, I I love it, you know. Um, you know, there's a there's a book called Masters of Doom that kind of tells the story of how we how we grew up and made you know, we had software and made our games, and and uh, the, the the big takeaway from the book that a lot of people get is that it's just this really fun, positive roller coaster that that gets people pumped up, and they they want to stay up and drink pizza or drink <laughs> drink type Pepsi and eat pizza and just make games <laughs> because that's what you read about in the book, and that's what got us to making the stuff that we made, and um, and a lot of people root it to bring him up out of some, you know, development funk or, um, just a down time for them. Uh, the thing I think that people really like about it is that they really identify themselves in our, in, in, in our characters. Like, I'm just like these guys. Like I love making games just like them. Like they feel like they could do the exact same thing, which is great. So it gives a lot of people, um, a lot of hope and encouragement to just keep on doing it, just keep going. You will reach there. You know, you'll reach that point. Um, so I have, uh, you know, a website where we actually have like posters and stuff of some of those images that you saw, um, and just related uh, Doom and Quake stuff. You know, for people that you can't get any, you know, can't get anywhere else, especially if it's signed. Um, but people like to, to kind of. Point back to, to those games in those days and go, like, that was, that was really cool. I want to do that.
2: Is it easier or is it harder making games uh, in 2020 than it was when you first started? <sighs> you know, it's,
1: <laughs> it's just different. You know, I can't say it's harder. I mean, we have engines now, we don't even have to write those engines. You know, back in the day, you had to program in 6502 or 8086 assembly language to make things go fast. And that was a lot of work. Um I'd say, you know, just having bigger teams is a different kind of complexity. Having more people involved and having to have layers of leads and for you know, producers and that kind of stuff is more is is a different kind of problem than just having four people or six people developing. Um I wouldn't say it's harder. I'd just say it's different, you know, like just think back in the day um when you would make a game but there's no way for anyone to see it like there was no internet back in the 80s you would make a game and who's gonna who's gonna see that game you you know if you had a modem you could upload it maybe somewhere but um you know i never had a modem back then so <laughs> it's it's very different than today like i could get on the internet and put anything i want up anywhere and you know the problem is that everyone can do that now. Everyone. it's discovery now it's a discovery problem Mm -hmm. um but yeah it's just different it's not harder it's not it's not really too much easier i mean there's so much information now back 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 in the 80s it was very hard to find books that could teach you the stuff that you needed to know and now if you want to learn anything at all you don't need to buy a book you just get on the internet and you can find tutorials for every single thing you need to learn so um, learning is amazing. Um, the thing that that's funny is like the, 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 the amount of work that we got done back in those days, it was so much work because we had no cell phones, no internet, no in- interruptions. We didn't have notifications. We didn't have social media. We had nothing to take our time away from just making games. And nowadays, you know, you're flooded with information and it just takes your attention away from the one thing. So um it takes takes longer because of that uh but uh you know it's all it's all filtering and control over your information
2: what what is the biggest misconception about either your career or or you personally that you've heard over the years that you'd really like to to challenge she's
1: probably that um that i was responsible for putting out the daikatana ad I didn't do that, um, but, uh, you know, he represented my game, and, and I told the marketing guy, well, if you want to do that, I guess, you know, if you think it's a good idea, it wasn't. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the geez, that, geez, what else could there be? Um, you know, Masters of Doom has a lot of information in it, and it's all, all pretty truthful stuff you know it's not it's not made up there was five years worth of research and writing put into that book so it's a good place to to get information um i think that you know if people people thought that i was um like an arrogant person um you know it's not uh i don't think it was like arrogance it was just uh i have a i have a pretty um like my sense of humor is kind of snarky and I'm pretty confident. Um, but I but I was never into putting people down or anything like that. So I think some people got the perception that I was arrogant or something. Um, but no, I've always been um, focused on just making games. You know, that was the, the most important thing.
2: And just finally, um, the studio you founded uh, in software—it was part of Zetmacs Media. That's been that for quite a while, which has just been acquired by Microsoft. Can you tell me how does that feel? Uh, that this uh, some of your work is now part of this gigantic studio structure?
1: I think it's pretty great. You know, um, this is a you know company that has the resources to really take all these franchises, you know, in new directions if needed. Um, it's a, I think it's a better, better home for all those franchises. And, uh, you know, it's in, it's in a game company, you know, like the the Microsoft, uh, the the Xbox studios. So um, I think it was a better move. I thought it was great. So it was, um, I was surprised that Zenimax did such a good job, but I think that was kind of up to Bethesda. I think that's what Bethesda's doing. It turned out well because of Bethesda. Um, and that this move just makes, like, there, there's no reason, there's no excuses for them not to continue to make really cool stuff. Nothing's holding them back.
2: And I think that's a fantastic place uh, to leave it there. John Romero, I'd like to thank you so much for your time, sharing your expertise, some of the stories, and uh, uh, talking to us a little bit about uh, your history and your work. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us here in, in Western Australia.
0: All right. Well, thanks for having me there. It's been fun. That's John Romero speaking at the XRWA Festival uh, about developing games, about the history, answering some of your questions you may have had and some memories of the time. Now, Pixel Sift is produced by Fiona Bartholomeus, Sarah Island, Daniel Ang and Adam Christou. Mitchell Lowe is our senior producer and my name is Gianni Giovanni, and I'm the executive producer. As always, we'll be putting links to everything we talked about in the show notes of this. You can find those links in your podcast player or on pixelsift.com. Dot au. On the website, you'll also find articles, you'll find interviews, you'll find uh, videos, and much, much more. So that address again is pixelsift.com.au. And while you're there, why not join us on Discord? We've got a really great, supportive community of people who make stuff, who enjoy games, who share a really interesting passion in appreciating interactive media, interactive games, all of that sort of stuff. Just cool, chill place. If you want to be part of that, you can come join us on Discord. The address is pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. So pixelsift.com.au forward slash Discord. If you like the show, share it with your friends. Uh, They can subscribe or follow the podcast for free. It doesn't cost anything and you can get every episode that we make uh, for nothing. Uh, Just get them involved. If you think someone will like it, we appreciate you sharing the word. That's all for now. Until next time, have fun.